Bible. What is it and why does it matter? The Bible is one of the best-selling books of all time, selling 2.5 billion copies worldwide. Not to mention nearly 400 million people have downloaded the YouVersion Bible app. But many people have questions or strong feelings about the Bible. Maybe you've grown up with the Bible in your house, but never paid much attention to it. Maybe you've attempted to connect with the Bible, but found it too confusing. Maybe you love the Bible and want to gain a better understanding of it. Or maybe you've had a bad experience with a Christian who used the Bible to point out your faults and failures. Regardless of your thoughts on the Bible, its impact on culture is profound. The Bible has influenced famous art pieces, phrases we use in everyday conversation, movies, and even song lyrics. The Bible was inspired by God, but written by people. It documents the event Christian faith rests on, Jesus dying on a cross, resurrecting from the dead, and paving the way for us to have a relationship with God. It's made up of 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years in three original languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic by more than 40 authors, some unknown, some prophets, some eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's a lot, but it's not as confusing as it sounds. The Bible Project makes videos like this one about understanding the Bible. The Bible is a collection of many books telling one unified story from beginning to end. But all those books were written in different literary styles. Yeah, think of it like walking into a bookstore where every aisle has a different kind of literature. There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're gonna have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for. Right, they're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways. Yes, and so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Still confused? Here's how those different literary styles connect. The Bible is one long epic narrative with multiple movements or acts. The Old Testament recounts the first series of acts that give you everything you need to make sense of the story to follow. And then in the New Testament, these are all picked up and carried forward to the story's culmination in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. The first act is about God and all humanity. God provides a sweet garden temple for humans who are made to be God's partners in ruling the world. But the humans are foolish and they give in to a dark temptation and rebel against God's wisdom. So they're exiled into a wilderness where they start killing each other. They build cities that spread their selfishness and oppression leading up to the big bad city of Babylon. But God loves the world and its foolish humans, so he sets in motion a rescue plan by promising the arrival of a new human who will destroy the evil that has lured us into self-destruction. The next act of the biblical story is about God and Israel, and it develops the themes and patterns of the first act. God calls a new humanity out of Babylon into a sweet garden land, Abraham, Sarah, and his descendants, the Israelites. God promises that through them, divine blessing will be restored to all of the nations. Surely these are the new humans that we're waiting for, but the Israelites repeat humanity's rebellion against God, building their own violent cities that lead to self-destruction and another exile in Babylon. But God sustains his promise that the new human will come from Abraham's lineage. It will be a priest king who will now have to rescue both Israel and humanity from Babylon to restore God's blessing to the world.
You can probably tell that there's more where that video came from. That's a video that most of it was put together by the Bible Project. Uh, they're a site that, that runs stuff and puts it on YouTube that's teaching people all over the world about what the Bible is and what it says. And they do an incredible job and present it in very simple ways. It's also uh, a major part of our curriculum that we use here at Northwest to teach our kids about the Bible. And so as we kind of move through our series talking about faith path and how to pass off faith at home, I wanted you to get to see a little bit of what our kids are seeing and what they're learning and how they're learning it. Uh, but actually, I use Pro Bible Project videos uh, in my Bible classes too. And Bill, I think you've used some of them uh, at Oklahoma Christian when he was teaching up there to introduce students to the Bible because they just do an incredible job of taking the complexity of Scripture and, and presenting it in a way that very simply says, here's the big picture in small and, and digestible ways uh, it's a great entry point into engaging with the Word of God. And that's an important thing. Uh, you know, we tell children Bible stories, but it's really not until they're in third or fourth grade that they're really able to read at a reading level that allows them to engage Scripture on their own. Uh, up until that point, they're still learning how to read books in school that say things like, see, spot, run. Uh, Bill and Joe go to the store. Uh, you can't really read Genesis when that's your reading level. But as they enter into second, third, fourth grade, uh, they really start entering into a, a stage of their lives where you want to start engaging them with the reading of God's Word. Not just getting it from stories and from hearsay and what other people say and not just YouTube videos, although that's good. You need to help kids to actually open their Bibles and read these words. And you don't have to wait till they can read to read to them or to engage with them in age-appropriate ways. But we need God's Word in our houses being read uh, with our families. And if, you're, if you live on your own, you still need God's Word. It's not just for groups. Every single one of us needs to be finding ways to regularly engage with the Word of God so that we can take what God gives us in His Word and begin putting it into practice. You know, when we think about what the Bible is um, and, and, and what it isn't, I think we need to think about who it is for different groups of people. Uh, for example, if you're thinking about what is the Bible for people who actually claim to believe in it, they say lots of different things. You can ask people, do you believe in the Bible? Yes, I believe in the Bible. Uh, well, what does that mean to you? And some people will say, well, I, for me, the Bible is a love letter from God. And that's a good way to think about it. It's a good way to think about how the story of creation through the, the Old Testament and God's kind of attempts to redeem Israel and to save them, ultimately coming through Jesus Christ who dies on the cross to save you, it is a love story. It's about a God who created you out of love and who sought to rescue you out of love. God is always doing things to bring us into a loving child and father relationship with him. And it is that. But it's not just that. If you think about the whole Bible as a love story, there's going to be some parts that are just really weird. Um, if you go read Judges in the story of Samson, and you're like, God, just tell me how Samson makes it clear that you love me. It's going to be a confusing way to try and figure out what that story is talking about. And yet other people will th talk about the Bible and say, for me, it's, it's just history. It's pure history. This is a historical record of things that happened. And it is history especially the parts that, that the video described as narrative. 
the stories that are being written about in the Bible are telling us about events that actually happened. And, and among historians, the Bible is considered one of the most accurate, most detailed, most reliable sources about the ancient world that we have. And the number of, of manuscripts that we have of this ancient, ancient book telling us ancient stories, the number of documents we have make it so much more reliable, hundreds of times more reliable than other historical records that we have uh, from similar time spans. It's written by different authors, which give it uh, an incredible amount of authenticity that different groups and different people come together and say, this is what happened. And someone somewhere else in the world is saying, yeah, it is what happened. I saw it over here. That adds to the, the strength of the testimony of the book. Uh, some people say, you know, it teaches me, think of it as a rule book. This is what I use to figure out how to live. I follow the instructions that are in it. Um, and it does have instructions, but it's not all instructions. Uh, part of it is poetry. And, and if you try and shape your life according to poetry, uh, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't even know what that would look like. Uh, but there is also, next to the books on poetry, books on wisdom teaching and wisdom literature that teach you the best ways to live out your life in the world. And the wisdom literature is not a command. It's not an instruction. It's guidance. In fact, some of the wisdom literature seems to be having arguments with itself about the best ways to do things, because that's what wisdom literature does. It lives in a world where we're constantly trying to figure out what is the best way to live in this world that God's given us. And wisdom invites us into those conversations. But there's other passages uh, that just give us rules, that just give us instructions, that say you ought to live this way, you should not live that way. And, and for people of faith, we need to know what those are and live accordingly. The Bible for believers is also something that gives you a way of life. Jesus was constantly teaching uh, in ways that would call people who are followers of his kingdom to live differently from those who are not followers of his kingdom. And so as Christians, if we say we believe this book, it means more than I believe that it's true, I believe that it happened, I believe that, that it's from God. You can believe all those things and not change your life to match what it teaches one bit. You can believe the Bible is true and it not make a difference in your life if you choose to live differently than Jesus calls you to live. So the Bible is a love letter. It is history. It does give us moral instructions and, and, and rules to live by, but it also gives us a way of life. And it calls you not just to believe that the words in it are true, but that they matter and make a difference for how you live and how you understand the world and how you understand who God is and, and how you should live as a result of that. But if you're not a believer, what is the Bible? If you're not a believer, what is the Bible? And what most non-believers will say, the two things I hear the most from non-believers today is, is I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in the Bible. And it's confusing me to understand uh, what it means when they say that to some extent. Because when you say you don't believe the Bible, uh, to some extent that's like saying, I don't believe in the Constitution. So what do you mean you don't believe in it? You can go to a, a museum in Washington, D.C. and see it on display. It's a document that exists. You, can, you, know, you don't believe that it exists? You, well, they don't mean that, obviously, uh, that they don't believe in the existence of Bibles. 
they can't really even mean that they don't believe that it tells the story of Israel. This, the Old Testament, is the historical record of how Israel moved in the ancient Near East thousands of years ago, and they kept their history. And, and so to say, I don't believe in the Old Testament, most of that uh, actually means that you don't believe in the history books that were passed down for generations and then eventually turned into one of the most accurate historical records given to us of the ancient world. If you're not going to believe in that, you also need to say, I don't believe in the history of Rome, or I don't believe in the history of Egypt. I don't believe that Pharaohs existed. And you can say that, but people aren't going to treat you with a lot of intellectual respect. They're just not. And so if you're saying you don't believe the Bible is true, I don't think that you're intellectually speaking really well about what you don't believe in. Because most of it is really history. And most of it is given to us by eyewitnesses. And most of it is given to us by people who believe that as a result of that, it should shape how you choose to live. Now, if what you mean is the way I understand the Bible has no impact on what I believe about God or the world, that makes sense. But you can't just say, I don't believe in the Bible unless you're also going to say, I don't believe in, in history, or I don't believe in uh, eyewitness testimonies, or I ignore when someone tells me that things happened. Uh, if I just say, oh, I don't believe you, and I live differently, that's, that's kind of what they're, they're doing. And so to simply say, I don't believe in the Bible, is, is a little bit intellectually lazy at best and dishonest at worst. You really can't do that. But you can say, I don't care what that book says, it doesn't have any impact on how I choose to live. Now that is more honest, I think, to what most people are saying when they say, I don't believe in the Bible. And it gets closer to what people say a lot of times, which is, I don't change how I live or what I think about the world based on a 2,000-year-old book. And I want to engage that just a little bit, because again, I don't think you've read the Bible if you think that it's a 2,000-year-old book, in part because it's really 66 books. The Bible should be better thought of as a library of the ancient world and people that are trying to figure out who God is. It's their library. It's the collected stories that are written in 66 parts by over 40 authors, some we know and some we don't, in three different languages. And officially, it's put together over 1,500 years. And the idea, keep in mind that our country is you know, a few hundred years old, and the Bible was written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors who managed to tell the story, many of them without having other copies of what the other authors are writing, and are able to tell a story that is incredibly consistent, that is incredibly uh, cohesive in how it fits together to tell the story of who God is and what he's trying to do to save his people. And so there's many other religious books that are written by one person who says, uh, listen, I've been thinking about the world and I want to tell you about this God that I believe in or maybe I've created or, or however they think about it. But I want to come up with a new philosophy or religion or way of living. And a single author writes a single book. That's a book. That's a book that's written by a person who's trying to improve the world through creating a new way of interacting with the divine world. But the Bible's not like that. 
The Bible is written by poets who are trying to sing to God and praise God. The Bible is written by historians who want you to understand what Israel went through. The Bible is written by eyewitnesses who are saying, listen, this may seem crazy, but I have to tell you what I saw. And then other eyewitnesses that say, I saw it too, here's what I saw. And then other researchers who went out and said, yeah, you've got them and their eyewitness accounts, but I'm going to go interview as many people as I can find. And like a journalist or historian, I'm going to compile all of this into the most meaningful and coherent way of describing what happened in Jesus' life. And others were given visions, and others were given dreams, and, and others wrestled with understanding what it means for, uh, for marriage and romance. And, and this book includes all of these different stories and all of these different genres written by all of these different people over 1,500 years, but including documents that are even thousands of years older than that that they're putting together. And it becomes this book that so many of us take for granted. But it's God's Word. And it's all of those complex things in one. It includes all of those things. And so when you say, I, I don't choose to sort my life out according to some 2,000-year-old book, I don't think you know what's between the covers. Because it's so much richer than that. And it's so much more complex than that. And it involves so many different sources of information going into it that if you want to read it and say, I've read the Bible and all the different books, and some of them I think are probably true, and some of them maybe aren't, but I don't order my life according to that, then you've done some work to come to a place of no faith. But if you just say, I don't read old books and make my life fit to that, you're not doing the work that's going to have an eternal impact on your life. And I think that as Christians, and especially for our youth, that there's so many voices out there that just dismiss the Bible out of hand. Don't worry about the Bible. It's an ancient book with old views. It's old-fashioned. It doesn't have anything relevant to say to our world today. You need to understand that the people that say that in the world today are lazy or dishonest or just haven't read what they claim to ignore. Some of the brightest and most brilliant people I know have read the Bible and tried to figure out if it's true or not and have come to the decision that it is and they're willing to defend it with their entire lives. And so when you go to, to school, when you go to college and there's people that just dismiss it and go, oh, you're one of those old-fashioned people who reads the old-fashioned book, how sad for you. You need to know that those people haven't done the work that brilliant people have done to know what's contained in this book. All right, I went longer on that than I intended to. But the world that just dismisses the Bible out of hand is, is lazy, and you need to know that. So what is the Bible? The Bible is God's Word, and in Hebrews chapter 4, it's described this way, and I think this is so important. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I want to tell you that I think the Bible, that we do it a little bit of a disservice by writing it the way that we do. Um, do you know what? how many things in your life uh, have double columns and footnotes that you read? 
The answer is pretty short. It's textbooks, newspapers, and encyclopedias. And when I talk to you about reading textbooks, uh, encyclopedias, and newspapers, how many of you get really excited? None of you. And so your brain, when it sees two columns and footnotes, automatically is pro... Yeah, Jeff says, me... Yeah, and that's why he and I have nerdy conversations over lunch, because we're like, ooh, footnotes. They're there to actually be read. Okay, Um, so the thing that you need to know is that your brain is a little bit programmed to open your Bible and go, this looks boring, because it visually does look boring to you. There's translations that are coming out right now, and in fact, we've got a couple of them on display over at HomePoint that take out the verse numbers, take out the headings, take out the chapters, and then put them in a single column, and you can read it. And what's really fun, if you find a translation that does that, I encourage you to read in it. And, and what you'll do is go, man, this translation is completely different than anyone I've ever read before. What is this? And you turn to the front and go, it's the same translation you've been reading. You can get an NIV that's written without all the stuff that makes your brain think it's boring. And you read it and you go, man, this just flows. And part of the reason that that's true is that we've taught ourselves to expect to be bored when we read God's word. But if you instead understand that God's word is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit's joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, you begin to have a different expectation of what God's word is going to do if you open the book and are present to it. That it's going to start to shape you and change you and mold you. That it doesn't just give you information. You're not reading the genealogy so that you can understand all the ancestry of Jesus, but instead you're opening the Bible and going, man, this story is just changing the way that I think about the world and God and my role in all of that. This story is amazing. If you'll just give it a chance to come alive to you, you will be filled with life as a result. The Word of God is alive and active. Not only that, uh, in the book after Hebrews, uh, in the book of James, uh, it tells us, and this is James that is writing probably the brother of Jesus, and he's giving advice to the church and helping them think about what it means to be God's people in the world. And he writes this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Not only is the word of God a sharp sword, it's a mirror. 
And when you read a scripture like this, and Nathan read it to us earlier and invited us to listen to the text and find a word that God was using to speak to us from today, when you begin to engage the word of God that way, where you go and open up to a passage in scripture and you say, what does the word of God have for me today that I need to hear, that I need to be doing, that I need to put into my life in practice? What habits do I need to develop? What habits do I need to get rid of so that I can be God's person today? You go to the mirror every morning, most of you. Most of you go to the mirror every morning and make sure that you're presentable before you go out into the world, right? You make sure that you're doing the things that that allow you to look good. I don't have to spend as much time in front of the mirror as some of you. There's just, I'm, I'm lower maintenance. So, it's just... One of the gifts God's given me is free time. Uh, But you go look in the mirror and you ask yourself in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And you're like, "Eh, it's me now. And then you can go and start your day. We need to be every day or, or with whatever regularity that works for you, opening the word of God and saying, word of God, word of God, show me what I need to see about myself and who I need to, what I need to do to get myself presentable to you and to the world on your behalf. Amen. That the word of God desires to function that way in our lives. And the word isn't just history and it isn't just rules. It is those things, but it's so much more. And so in Psalm 119, and if you've never sat down and just read Psalm 119, you need to do it. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest of all the Psalms, uh, and it's an entire Psalm dedicated to talking about how awesome God's Word is, how awesome the Scriptures are, how incredible the law is, how all the teachings of God have this richness that is is life-giving, and it changes you, and it changes the world if you'll just read it. And so Psalm 119, you don't get this in English because we had to translate it so that you could read it. Um, But you'll notice that at the beginning, every eight verses, uh, there is a Hebrew letter. So Aleph, and then verse 9 is Beth, and then before verse 17 is uh, Gimel. I guess that's how they're pronounced. I know very little about Hebrew. Um, But we're going to be reading here in a second from Beth. And Beth is the eight verses where every single verse in this section begins with the letter Beth, the Hebrew letter Beth. And so what this psalm does is it goes through the entire alphabet as an acrostic poem. And so the first eight verses all begin with A, and the second eight verses begin with B, and the the next eight verses begin with C. And it's written to be this beautiful, ordered way of telling you that when God's word is read and put in practice by God's people, the whole world starts to make sense. From A to Z, with incredible detail and incredible order, the world becomes shaped by God's word. And so the B section reads this way. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. 
I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. In this section, the psalmist has this very clear understanding that if you want purity in your life, the way that you get it is not to simply walk around being, going, don't think dirty thoughts, don't think dirty thoughts, don't look at things I shouldn't look at, be pure all the time, don't make mistakes. The way that you're supposed to gain purity in your life is by knowing God's word, by engaging with scripture, by allowing it to become so hidden in your heart that you sin less. The psalmist has this anticipation and expectation that if you'll spend more time reading God's word, the result is that you'll have more purity and obedience to God in your life. It will actually change you and your ability to follow what God wants you to follow if you just read these words. You'll become a person who does a better job of walking on the path that God puts in front of you. And the last scripture I want to mention, and, and I won't read it to you because I know we're kind of running up against a little bit of, of some time, but the last scripture, this, and then I've got five tips that I want to give you about, um, about reading scripture that you can take or leave. The last scripture I want to do is this. It's the parable of the sower, where Jesus is telling a group of people uh, about a sower who goes out and he's sowing seeds and he plants, he scatters seeds just abundantly everywhere almost wastefully in his scattering of seed not caring where it falls but just as much seed as he can get out there he's getting out there and the seed is the word of God the parable tells us and some of it falls on different soils some of it falls on the the soil that is totally solid it's bad soil the seed never gets planted at all some of it falls in the rocky area where it can't take root and it gets uprooted. Some of it is in uh, the weedy area and the thorny area. And the seed falls in all these different soil types. And it responds in different ways. But the seed that falls in the fertile soil, uh, it says, produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times greater than what is sown. And we always, when we talk about this parable, we ask the question, what type of soil are you? that when the word of God is sown into your heart, that it produces something dozens of times greater than what was sown. A hundred times more than the word plants in you is what you produce in fruit and in, in, in work for the kingdom as a result of your receiving the word of God. And we ask, do you get distracted? Do you just ignore the word? Do you, are you instead fertile soil? But let me tell you, church, I, I think we need to go back to the question that starts before the story, which is this. It doesn't matter what kind of soil your heart is if you don't ever read the Bible. It doesn't matter how receptive you are to God's word if you don't ever hear it, if you don't ever read it, if you don't ever engage with God's word, there's no seed in your soil. Who cares what kind of soil you are? The dirt doesn't matter if there's no seed. And so the first piece of advice that I'll give you uh, five tips for reading the Bible is this. What is the best way to read the Bible? Often. Frequently. With regularity. Like you expect it to do something in your life and make your life better as a result of opening these covers or turning on an app or listening to it in the car. There's so many different ways in the world that we live in today for you to engage in Scripture. You have no excuse left to not let God's word be planted in your heart. So put the word in your life frequently. The second one is this. 
Um, in this room, we have all kinds of different readers, all kinds of different reading levels and styles, people uh, at different times that maybe have spoken other languages. Uh, sometimes people ask me, what is the best translation for me to be reading? If you're a Bible student or something that you really want to get in and study to be teaching, there's a conversation to be had there about what translations are best. But if you just want to read to let the Bible shape you and mold you, the best translation for you is the one that will get you to turn one more page. And so you need to find a Bible that fits your reading level. And the Bibles actually have been graded based on what reading level they are, how accessible they are to readers at different levels. So, for example, the New International Reader's Version, which is kind of the kid's version of the NIV, is written at a third grade reading level so that the average third grader uh, can, can read and understand and continue to move through the book at a pretty easy level. Uh, the NIV is written at about a middle school reading level. And so that's why when we were doing LTC, we used the NIV a lot, it has a more accessible reading level to younger readers. Uh, and so if you don't, if you're someone that's like, man, I just don't like reading very much, it makes me tired, get a translation that's easier to read. And that's not an insult, it doesn't mean you're not smart, but find the, the type of reading that's comfortable for you and then get into that. The King James Version is written at a, a 10 or 12th grade reading level. Uh, sometimes higher, depending on, on kind of how it's put together. Um, if you have someone, and it's the cheapest because its copyright has expired, so you can buy them for a dollar. So we get about King James all over the place because they're so cheap. But if we have a world that's saying, I'm not interested in a 2,000-year-old book, let's not give it to them in 400-year-old words. You know what I'm saying? We need to find ways to make Scripture accessible to young people and to the world. Because today in the United States... Uh, in a study that was done in 2014 by Indiana and Purdue University, they found that for 55% of Americans, the King James Version is still the most widely read version in their home. And, and I'm, I'm not on a campaign to destroy the King James Version, but in a, a country that's also have ever, increase, ever decreasing reading levels and ever increasing numbers of people that speak English as a second language, this can't be the translation that we're putting in the hands of people when it's inaccessible to their ability to read the most. We've got to be finding ways to get translations that are accessible. And I mentioned earlier, uh, Laura and I have set out several from our personal library. They're not gifts for you. Uh, they're samples for you. You can look at them, touch them, uh, flip through them, see what's kind of out there in case you might be interested in purchasing one, purchasing one of your own from someone who's selling them. I'm not. Uh, go look at those just realize that there's more out there than the Bible you've been reading. And it may, you may find something that you're like, man, I think I would spend more time in God's word if I owned this. Then own that. And if the cost is getting in the way, come and talk to us about that. We want you to have access to God's word in a way that plants the seed in you to produce a harvest a hundred times more than what was sown. Don't let I'm not good at reading the Bible keep you from letting God's word into your life. Uh, the third tip is this, that you are reading the Bible to know God's will and God's story and how it changes your life. We often get into the idea that we're gaining trivial knowledge, that we're just getting the data, we're just getting the information, and that we can then later give it to other people. Uh, that's not the purpose of reading the Bible. The purpose of reading the Bible is to know your part in God's story to know how it should shape the choices you make, the actions you make, the words you speak, the places you go, and the people you go there with. 
God's word should shape you and mold you as you begin to know his story and what it means for your life. The fourth tip and trick for letting the Bible make a difference in your life is that you should read it relationally. This goes back to that love story idea, right? The Bible is not about things that happened a long time ago, far, far away. The Bible is about what God is doing in your life today and tomorrow. It's about what God's been doing in your life since the day you were born it's what, and before. It's what God's been doing from the moment that he began knitting you together in, his mother's, in your mother's womb. God's doing incredible things in you and for you and around you. And the Bible should help you to understand that God's trying to have this relationship with you. And it should invite you into a relationship with a father who wants you so badly to be his adopted child. And so you have to read the Bible relationally. This isn't a textbook where at the end of it, you, can't, you don't read a science book and think at the end of it, boy, I hope at the end of this I'm just going to really have a strong relationship with Albert Einstein. But you do read the Bible that way. You read the Bible so that when you learn about this God who gave his son on a cross to die for you in hopes that you'll be his child, it should change your relationship with him. And the last tip is this, is that you should read the Bible with an expectation that it will spiritually form you. I love the way that we, we did our scripture reading this morning. Uh, it's an ancient practice called Lectio Divina. There's a lot of groups that are reimagining it today called Dwelling in the Word. You can look up either one of those if you want to do it at home. But the, the idea is this, is that the Bible tells you stories and it gives you instructions and it invites you into what God has been doing. But it also has something for you today and every day. And so you can pray the Bible. You can read scripture and say, I'm going to pray and ask God that he'll give me a word or phrase from this scripture today. And then I'll just ask God, God, what can I receive from this word or phrase today? Now, this is not good Bible study, but it's incredible spiritually formative prayer. And you can allow scripture to give you a gift from God today. And so you should expect that God's word, when you open it and read it, and listen to it and pray it to form you spiritually. You take the double-edged sword and put it in the hands of the greatest potter and allow God to begin shaping you and crafting you into the image of his son. Because at the end of the day, this book is all about God's work to save humans, including you. And if you need to respond to that invitation today, to respond to that invitation to be saved by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, to be living into that resurrection in a way that changes you, not just because you mentally believe it, because you become a new person living in a new way as a result of your faith in the stories in this book and the things Jesus did and what the Spirit desires to do in you today. If you need to respond to that, come forward this morning as we stand and sing. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty.